if you would pray with me now. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your cross. Because it is through Christ and his death and his resurrection that we are able to have new life. So I ask that today as we look toward baptism, that it would be a celebration of new life. That we wouldn't take it for granted just seeing someone go underwater and come out wet. But it is a proclamation of what's already happened in their life. And that is a death to sin. And a being raised in newness of life because of Christ and His work. And so I pray that it would be something that encourages all of us. Not just... The one being baptized, Morgan Josiah, but that it would also be an encouragement to us who are observing, who are being blessed to participate with him, to celebrate with him. And so as we look to your word, I pray that you would teach us, that your spirit would go forth and use your word to instruct our hearts that we would draw near to you because of your great work on the cross. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this week will be uh, similar to last week where it's not going to be a straight exposition like uh, we, we have with membership last week. But we will be in the Word. We'll be in Colossians chapter 2. But I also want to make sure that we haven't forgotten where we've come in this series. So this series on the church is a seven-week series. And I think if we were to sum it up, we could sum it up like this. The church, a people set apart by God and Christ that exists to glorify God by making disciples. And so there are two key phrases in that. A people set apart by God. We are set apart in salvation through Christ. And we saw that in week one with the new covenant. And then we're also set apart in this local gathering that we call Hamilton Baptist Church. We are a local gathering of the body of Christ, this new community. And we're committed to one another. So we saw that in weeks two and three, a new community. But then also we're committed to one another through membership. And then the second key phrase, to glorify God. That's why we exist. We don't exist. We're not set, set apart just that we might be a holy huddle gathered together. But we exist because we are to glorify God, our maker. And so if that's true, there are things that we must be doing. Making disciples. Worshiping Him. And then today and next week, we look at the ordinances. The ordinances being baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are a proclamation of the gospel. It's not just something that we do as a ritual where we're doing this because it's been handed down to us. It's not something that we just accept wholeheartedly without question and we just say, okay, well, this is in practice for hundreds or thousands of years, so we're just going to do it today. It's not that at all. It is a proclamation of the gospel of what's been done in our lives if you are in Christ, what's been done in Morgan Josiah's life. And He is coming as well as we have all who are in Christ proclaiming the gospel. 
And so we also have to be careful that it's not just something that we do that we, we've added on to becoming a Christian, right? We don't say the gospel is this plus baptism equals salvation. It's not like that. Salvation has always been and always will be through faith. And so we have to be very clear and, and distinct in when we say that we should follow Christ in baptism. But it's not something that earns us our salvation. And in fact, Paul does the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. When he tells these evildoers, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, he tells them that circumcision is not required for salvation. And so we want to be very careful today and say that salvation is not brought about by belief plus baptism. So that requires that we look carefully at the scriptures and, and see that these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they highlight the, the climax or the pinnacle of salvation history. Where we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that God, before the foundation of the world, had a plan to redeem His people. And then we see in, in, in Genesis all the way through uh, the Old Testament leading up to Christ that everything is leading up to this Messiah, the one who is coming, Christ. Who's going to redeem a people for himself. And so these ordinances, they highlight that. They highlight the incarnation of Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so with that, we have to examine why should we even be baptized. And some would say baptism is required for salvation. That you have to be baptized in order to be a child of God. And most of the time they take that from Mark chapter 16, verse 16. And it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And so they say, okay, well, it's belief plus baptism, he will be saved, right? So believe and be baptized and you will be saved. And so they use that verse to say, baptism plus belief requires or, or, or initiates salvation, but we have to read the whole verse. And so the, the remainder says, But he who does not believe will be condemned. So you're condemned for a lack of faith. Not a lack of faith or because you haven't been baptized. So it is a lack of faith that we're condemned. So on the other side of that is we believe and we want to follow in baptism and we're saved. So our belief is what saves us. God's grace through faith that saves us. And also you see this in Romans chapter 1 through 6. That God or Paul gives us this, this huge theology on sin and justification. That being, being made right before God. And, and he tells us in Romans chapter 1 and 2. That whether you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter. Everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Just one offense, one time that we've rebelled against this great good God because He is so holy and so perfect. That's why we deserve death and hell. It's not because we're, we're bad and our good isn't more than our bad, but it's because we've sinned this one time against this great, good, holy God that has separated us from Him forever. But Paul doesn't leave us there. In chapters 3 through 6, he refers to this man of faith, Abraham. 
and says, remember the faith of Abraham? It was by his faith that he's counted righteous. It's not because of anything he he did, but it's his faith. And then Paul ends chapter 6 with one that you guys probably all know. Romans 6, 23, right? For the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't end there. But it's a free gift of God. And that free gift is eternal life in Christ. And so it's not anything that you do because it's a free gift given to you through Christ and faith. And so that is... That is saying that we cannot earn salvation. We cannot do something. We cannot be baptized to earn our salvation. So baptism is not required for salvation. And then also on the flip side, there's some people who would say, I know it's clearly not required for salvation, but then they downplay the importance of baptism as well. And they would say, look to the thief on the cross. Well, he wasn't baptized, right? Before he was with Christ. And I would say yes you're exactly right. He wasn't. He also didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. To follow Christ in baptism. And I think that would even further highlight. That it is faith. That saves us. But then also. We can't downplay baptism so much. To to the fact that we say. Well it's just a, a mere proclamation of the gospel. It is. Sorry, we can't downplay it to just say that it's just me professing Christ. Because it's more than just a mere profession. It is a proclamation of the gospel. It's a proclamation of what's been done for us in Christ. And we also see that in the New Testament it's significant. Because in the gospels we see that the disciples of Christ actually were baptizing more than the disciples of John the baptizer. And then in Acts, we see that thousands, even in one day, come to Christ. And before they're added to the church, they're baptized. So they come to Christ, and then they're baptized and added to the church. So we know that the baptism is not required for salvation, but baptism is also not to be downplayed and the significance ignored. And then there's another view for baptism. And why should we be baptized? And that that's given to us through Christ and the apostles. So it's given to us by Christ through his example and his command. In Matthew chapter 3, he gives us this example of being baptized because he goes to John and says, John, baptize me. So he's not requiring something, not asking something of us that he's not willing first to do. And then after his death, burial, and resurrection, the last words he leaves to his disciples in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. So he gives us this twofold command. He gives us his example in Matthew 3, but then he also gives us this command. He says, as you go, make disciples. The last things he's telling us. And how are we supposed to make disciples? It's through baptizing and teaching them to obey Christ. And so we see this in Christ through His example, His command. But then also the apostles. And in Acts 10, Peter says in verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things. So these things referring to earlier in chapter 10, Peter's giving the Gentiles the gospel. He's telling them about Christ and what's been done for them in Christ. So that's what these things are. So while Peter was still saying these things, 
The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. And then in 47, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so it seems as though not only does Christ place high importance on baptism, but even his apostles say that baptism is taking place because first someone has come to know Christ and they're so closely associated that belief in Christ is immediately followed with baptism. So if that's the case, then we have to look at if baptism is what we're supposed to be doing, then what's the meaning? What's the significance? And, and why should it be done? And this is where I say, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you would look with me in verse 9. For in Him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh made God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so in verses 9 through 10, we see this committed people filled in Christ. We see it says in him or in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. He wasn't lacking in his deity because he's holy, fully God. But he's not lacking in his humanity either because it says he dwells bodily. He came to dwell among us. We also see that in Philippians 2 that, that he came, he descended. He took on the form of a servant. So he's fully God, fully human in what we are calling Jesus Christ the man. He comes... Offering life. And it's not just a dull life. It's verse 10. If you see there it says. You have been filled in him. So he hasn't just saved a little piece of you. A little part of you. You are filled in him. We all. If you are in Christ. Are filled in Christ. And it's not just. Okay I've got this. Supposedly person living in me. But you are filled. With the full deity of Christ. He is God Himself. This power of Christ makes it possible for those in Christ to be freed from their old ways. To be freed from the, the old self. And we see that in the following verses. Verses 11 through 12. It says, In Him, verse 11, So in Christ you were circumcised. So what is a circumcision? If you don't know the details of it, I'll refer you to Pastor Stephen. FLE training. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. But what is this circumcision? It's made without hands. It's not the foreskin. So in the Old Testament, the circumcision was a physical circumcision, right? 
At least that's what was entering the, the, the Israelites into this covenant promise. It's a sign of this covenant between Abraham and his offspring and God himself. But this circumcision that's referred to here is not a physical circumcision. It's the taking off of the old man, the circumcision of the heart. It's a working of God. It's not anything that you and I can do. There's no way that I could work hard enough, you could work hard enough to make this circumcision happen. It's a spiritual circumcision. And in that, we've died to the former way of life. Christ has set us free. He set us free from our old self. We see that putting off, in verse 11, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This circumcision is not performed by you and I, by doing good things to wash away sin. But the circumcision is done in Christ. It's done in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The spiritual circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. And you see in verse 12 what kind of circumcision this is. Buried with Christ in baptism. Through faith, we've been buried with Christ. And we've been raised with Christ. So we've been buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. And we can't take this flippantly because it's a, it says there it's a powerful working of God. It's something that only Christ can do. And let that be encouragement that if it's only Christ that can do it, you can't do something to undo it. You have been raised with Christ in newness of life. You have been raised with Christ through faith. And this resurrection is key. His death is important. And His resurrection is important. We can't have one. We can't have His death without His resurrection. Because if we do, then it just leaves us dead in our sins. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So baptism, it's this picture of this death and this resurrection. And if it's not without both, you're still dead in your sins. You're separated from Christ. And we see this in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives us the gospel reality of what's been done already. And it's this committed people rescued in Christ. He says in verse 13, And you who were dead in trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh. So you're dead. This is who you once were if you were in Christ. So he's, remember, he's talking to these Colossians. He says, you, the saints, these believers in Christ, you were once dead in your trespasses. And in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh. And this flesh here in verse 13 is not talking about the flesh as in the foreskin. It's talking, referring back to the same flesh in verse 11. This flesh, this circumcision of the flesh is referring to the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of the heart. And so it is, it is that we are dead or we were once dead. Unless you, have had, unless you have been saved by Christ through faith. And then again in 13, it says, And you, so he clarifies, and you, he reminds them of what they once were, and that was that they were once dead. But he doesn't leave them there. Hey guys, you were once dead, but he now says, And you were once dead, but now God made you alive. It was God who gave them life. 
And we see in according, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 2 that salvation is a gift of God. And why? So that no one may boast. Our boasting rather should be in Christ and His great work that He has done for us. Because remember, it's His powerful working. Only Christ could do this. And then in verse 14, by the canceling the record of debt. So He's not only just given us life, but He's canceled this record of debt, this IOU that we have to God because we have sinned, we have rebelled against this great good God. He has canceled in Christ this record of debt that was owed to us. And this is good news. This debt that we once owed God has been canceled in Christ. It can't be done by you because it's a powerful working of God. So rejoice because the, the, the wages that you deserved for your sin, it's been taken away from you. But it hasn't just been totally dropped. It's been paid for. The, the wages, what you deserved, has been paid for by Christ. Mark Dever sums it up like this. He says, people enter the new covenant by God's grace. And the means God has graciously chosen to use is faith. Faith is not caused or created by baptism. Rather, baptism is a public confession of faith. It symbolizes a commitment by both God and the believer. Baptism is an act of confession and utter dependence. Baptism in the Bible is neither elevated to the cause of conversion nor diminished to a mere marker of inclusion and a non-salvific event. That is to say that circumcision is different from baptism. Circumcision in the Old Testament, like we said earlier, is, is merely of the flesh. It's of the foreskin. Baptism represents what's been done for us in Christ, this new circumcision of the flesh. And he sums it up rather. Baptism is a public confession of God's saving work and the life of a believer. And so if, if baptism proclaims this gospel reality that you were once dead in your sins and you've been raised to newness in life, then that leads us to the next question of, well, who can be baptized then? If, if baptism represents this, this death to sin and this raising of new life, well, then who is or who can appropriately be baptized? Some would say that infant baptism is okay. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church would actually say that baptism is necessary for salvation. And it's the act of baptism itself that causes regeneration. Therefore, in this view, baptism is a means whereby the church bestows saving grace on people. And if, that, if they say that's true, then the logical outcome is this. And if it is this kind of a channel of saving grace, it should be given to all people. So if baptism regenerates a person, then why would we withhold it from someone? But we've seen already that baptism does not bring about salvation. Baptism does not regenerate and give new life. And so we can't logically go to the conclusion that we should just bestow baptism on everyone. And then there's another view, the, the covenantal view, that baptism is equated with circumcision. That, that circumcision is given in the Old Testament as the marker of, of, of God's chosen people. Although it does mark 
it, it may signify that that signification was more of an ethnic Israel, uh, of the people of Abraham. But that's too closely equating baptism and circumcision if we say that baptism is, is exactly the same thing as circumcision in the Old Testament. And, and that's because in the Old Testament, circumcision was given as a mark of God's people, of this family, this lineage. But baptism is now seen as a mark of God's people, His covenant people, through faith. And so we can't go there either. So what's this? I say, again, let's look to the Scriptures. The New Testament argues in Acts 2.41. says, those who have received His word were baptized. And then Acts 10, what I read earlier, 47 and 48, Peter asked, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? And he commanded them to be baptized. And so these all point, these passages point us to that baptism is appropriately given to those who have received the gospel. So the call there is receive the gospel. Christ says, come, follow me, that you may have life. Give yourself to me, trust in me, and then be baptized. Romans 6, 5 says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism being this outward symbol of a beginning life in Christ should only be given to those who actually show evidence of this Christian life. Paige Patterson says this, he says, the only appropriate candidate for the witness of baptism is someone who has something about which he can bear witness. So how can, if in baptism, we are representing, we're proclaiming, we're displaying this death and resurrection, how could we then baptize someone if this has not already happened to them? Because they are in that actual act of baptism, proclaiming this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and their uniting with Christ in that. So baptism should be, we've seen, a proclamation of the gospel. It is what we do when we are first following Christ. And so even with that, I know that there may be some of us here that maybe have not followed Christ in baptism and we maybe accepted Him a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. I'm not denying that you can't be in Christ you can't be his child without being baptized, but I would say, I would appeal to you, is it not the record of the scriptures of Christ himself and his apostles that we should be then following him in baptism? And it might be a little embarrassing to think, well, Josh, I came to Christ 10 years ago and I haven't been baptized yet, but I've been participating in the church. I've been involved in the church and most people don't know I haven't been baptized but I would say, what's of infinite more value? Is it honoring Christ and what He's commanded? Because He told us in the Great Commission that we as His disciples are to be baptizing others. And so if we're to be faithful disciples, I would say, can we be following Christ and His command to make disciples by baptizing and teaching them if we first have not been baptized and then teaching so I would say it's, it's of infinite more value that we are honoring Christ and following Him in baptism than saying, I haven't done this, and I know I haven't. Others have perceived maybe that I have. 
But it's far greater for us to follow Him than to worry about the opinion of man. Because that's fleeting. And if you're in that boat where you say, I've I've come to Christ, but I have not been baptized, I guarantee you this body would rejoice with you in baptism. It doesn't matter if it was last week or two years ago or five years ago. We want to rejoice. I want to rejoice with you in baptism. And so if that's what we're supposed to do, what is this mode that we call the proper mode? You could term it the proper way of baptism. What should it look like? The New Testament word that's most often used is baptizo. And that means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. And then also we see in Matthew 3.16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Mark 1.10, And when he came up out of the water. John 3.23, John was also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And then in Romans 6, 3 through 6, we see Paul talking about baptism being this uniting with Christ, or that it's a representation of the uniting with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And that most accurately is portrayed through the immersion going underwater and coming back up. And Wayne Grudem says this, The symbolism of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. And so I think that also from the Greek word, then also the testimony of the scriptures, but then even also the picture that we see in being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, they all point toward baptism most faithfully being pictured through this immersion. And then the proper authority. Who can rightly administer baptism? I would say that because we are all a kingdom of priests, that God's kingdom is, is, is us all priests, then it would be anyone who is a believer in Christ. But then also maybe what's the proper context? Maybe another way. And I'll read again to you Grudem's response here. He says... Since baptism is the, is the sign of entrance into the body of Christ, the church then, it seems appropriate that it be done within the, the fellowship of the church wherever possible. So that the church as a whole can rejoice with the person being baptized. And so that the faith of all believers in that church may be built up. Baptism is not just this mere spiritual, religious ritual that takes place back behind at the the back of the church. Baptism is a picture of what's been done for you and for me in the gospel that is Christ. It's a celebration. It's a proclaiming of new life to you, believers, that we can rejoice with this person being baptized. But it's also a reminder of your baptism, your receiving of Christ. And it's also a proclamation for anyone who doesn't believe. And if you are here, you're skeptical of of what it means to be a Christian because you've been burned by someone that's proclaimed to be a Christian or maybe the church itself has let you down. I would say let this be a pure picture of you or to you of what it is to be in Christ. Because you who were once dead in your trespasses Being dead, you cannot bring yourself back to life. 
But through faith in Christ, by God's grace, you will be resurrected with Christ as well. And so it's a celebration. And we even see marriage as a celebration, right? When we take our vows, we take our ring. And what do we say? If you take the traditional vows, you say, with this ring, I thee wed, right? But my, my marriage is not dependent upon me wearing this ring. My wife's thankful for that. My marriage with her, my promise to her to be her husband is based upon my commitment, my love for her. It's not dependent upon me wearing this ring. And I would refer you to baptism. Baptism is not a salvation, it is not, it's not a rite or a passageway to salvation. Morgan Josiah is coming today to you guys to proclaim that this baptism is not his right to salvation, but this is a proclamation of our, what's already been done for him in Christ. And so he is telling you all what's already been done for him, this good news, and that is Christ. So baptism is not just a mere symbol. It's something that also is a means to grace. And so what do you mean by that, Josh? It's a means to grace in that it does not give us saving grace. It does not give us salvation. But there's different types of grace. There's grace that parents show to their kids. I remember that. There's common grace that Christ shows to all of us. I'm taking breath right now. You're breathing right now. Whether you're a believer or you're not in Christ. He bestows all on us all common grace. But then he also bestows a special saving grace that we've talked about that comes through faith in Christ. But then I think there's also this, this means of grace, this edifying grace, this grace that builds up. Another place you may see this in the scriptures is Ephesians 4.29 where Paul tells them, may your speech give grace to those who hear. May your speech build up those who hear it according to the need of the moment. So may you know someone well enough that you can speak to them the words of Christ to build them up. And I think this is a similar way. When we observe this baptism today, may this be a means of grace to you. May it cause you to draw nearer to Christ. It's a means of grace to the, the one being baptized. It's a means of grace for those who are in Christ observing and I would even say for you, non-believer, may this be a call to grace for you in Christ through this picture of baptism. So as we sing, as we observe baptism, I say let's rejoice, let's celebrate. It is a beautiful picture of what's been done for us in Christ. Pray with me. God, it is easy for us to lose sight of the significance and the beauty of baptism, to disregard its blessing. Please remind us of the truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away. These truths are eternal. They bring us great blessing. We want to praise you. We want to celebrate you through baptism, what you have done for us, your great grace you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for love in Christ.
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing, Come Thou Found.